checking out your podcast today and i listened to a few different episodes so how does one start down the road of because i was what what i was really uh interested in is how did you get to to have such a very specific topic that seems like you have not run out of uh uh matter or subject matter for because it seems like anything that i've ever tried to do that's very specific you know five episodes and i'm i'm out of stuff I mean, obviously, climate changers. There's plenty, but you seem to find all sorts of different angles on it. Yeah, so I host a environmental podcast, The Sweaty Penguin, and each episode is topic based. Like you say, it's about a specific environmental issue. I deliver a comedy monologue introducing the issue, talking about how it affects not just the environment, but the economy, health, justice, any impact we might care about. Sure. And then I'll talk about some solutions, um, talk about the pros and cons, and then we'll interview an expert on the subject. And we've had professors on from all over the world, 10 countries, five continents. That's been really amazing. I was never concerned about running out of topics when we started. Everyone was asking me, like, aren't you worried you're going to run out of things? And I really wasn't. Really? I did a degree in environmental analysis and policy. So I was familiar with the fact that climate change makes its way into every little facet of our life, even if it might not be something we notice. Maybe it's not the biggest issue in the world, but even some of those little issues can be fun to talk about. So I wasn't concerned about that from the get-go, but what I really found is we start from the expert as opposed to from the topic. Mm -hmm. And that has made it a lot easier to come up with new topics because we find a new person we want to talk to. We see what they're researching. We figure out how to package it for folks like us who are not uh, professors. Sure. And that gives us a new topic. Sure. How, how, so how long does it take you to basically produce a episode? Because it seems like it's very well crafted. I, I was really impressed by just the, the polish of the, the whole episode. I watched a few of them actually. And they seem like a very well-produced, well-put-together, well-thought-out. Um, obviously, some work and time goes into to producing that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that. Yeah, it's a lot. I say sometimes that it feels like writing a new academic paper every <laughs> single week. Um, luckily, I have a great team of people that help me out. We usually interview the guests a good like three months or so in advance of the episode coming out. So it's a weekly podcast, but we're usually maybe eight to 10 guests ahead. Mm -hmm. And so that gives us some flexibility to kind of manipulate the schedule, make it so we're not putting like two foods back to back or two animals back to back or something. Right. Um, And so we start from there. We do the interview. We come up with questions. Then we take some time to do the research. So I have some researchers on my team who will work on that that maybe takes them a couple weeks and they'll 
it used to be where they would just create an outline, then I would take that and write the episode. Mm-hmm. Now we're sort of moving toward a researcher pairing up with one of our more comedic minds on the team to actually kind of write out the episode together. So sure. two people working together on it. And that's going to be a huge weight off my shoulders, <laughs> allow me to focus on some bigger fish. But yeah, so- I'd say in total, it's a pretty long process. Obviously, after that, I have to work on it, record it, and then my editor takes it from there. So sure. we're always down to the wire, but it's it's a pretty long process for each episode. So what? So it's, you've been doing it for a while. So have any of your views on climate change, or is there anything that you found out in the course of doing this that you were surprised about or has just changed your way of looking at a certain... Because like you said, everything seems to be kind of tied into uh, climate change one way or another. Was there anything that just you were just kind of not expecting and you sort of stumbled across? Yeah, I'll say something I may have expected but have gotten a little more firm on and then I'll say something I didn't expect. Okay. What I think I got more firm on is there's this idea that the environment and the economy are opposed to each other, that any economic development means environmental destruction and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be true. Every episode we do, (laughs) and I did expect this, but every episode we do, we find that there are economic issues, there are environmental issues, and very often you can create solutions that solve both. Mm-hmm. And you think about things like not just the damage that we have to pay for when hurricanes and wildfires come through, but you think just in the present, uh, solar and wind are now very competitive energy sources in the market. And even just beyond that, climate change itself is really about efficiency. It's about being smart. It's about I don't really like the phrase using less, but maybe saving some money, not buying the brand new car when your car you currently have works fine, uh, because that then reduces uh, environmental impact. So I tend to find that economic development and environmental development can and should go hand in hand. And that makes it a lot more exciting to work on these issues. Something surprising would be that very often the issue is part of the production process and not inherent to the thing. I find this a lot with food. Um, We hear so much about changing your diet to help the environment. Mm -hmm. And you can maybe make a decent argument I'll listen to for a couple foods. I probably won't buy in. I love steak too much. But (laughs) um, any, I mean, hear about coffee, hear about, like lots of these foods are things that it's not like coffee pods are farting methane. It's there's some issue in the production process that's causing some impact and we can fix that. That's hard, but it's fixable. And I don't think farmers would really want you to say, I'm going to cut out the food that they work so hard to grow. Right. So, um, so isn't, isn't a lot of this stuff just a, a problem of scale. So if there was, if there was, five of us as opposed to 8 billion of us that needed fed this would be like a non-issue but there's so many people that need to be fed and we have to find um new ways basically to feed all those people at some point 
we're going to feeding people's first. And then it seems like everything's going to tail behind it until we figure out how to do it exactly right. And, uh, you know, a lot of these um, different, you know, just take everybody hates slaughterhouse type stuff. Um, but it, if you were tasked with feeding people and processing as many animals as possible, no, I mean, no matter how you feel about it, sooner or later, you're going to end up there before you come up with something better. Um, I, and I feel like a lot of these problems are, are that same sort of thing. Like we, we have to figure out how to do it. And then we have to go back and figure out, oh, how do we do this right sort of deal? Is that, I mean, is that how you feel about it? Or is it, is it, is there something else be driving it that's different than that? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. And I think you're onto something there. I I mean, just for me, like starting this business, I kind of just throw things against the wall, see what <laughs> right. works, what doesn't, and then go from there. I don't think that's a wrong approach for these. I mean, we got to feed people. That's right. top priority. We People need water. People need shelter. I don't think the environment should ever stand in the way of that. It should, the environment is giving us services that we should and do take advantage of, right? whether it be the plants or animals or what have you. That's very natural. That's fine. We are connected to the environment. So I think that's not wrong to say we have these different systems. Let's figure out how to do it better. And we can do them better. It takes getting creative. Um, it can be difficult, but there are certainly ways we can do that. So that's a interesting point. Sure. The, the other thing that, uh, one of the things through my life, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how old you are, but I've been around a little bit and I remember being a little kid and we were for sure headed for the next ice age. That was ice age, ice age, ice age. And then we went through a period of, uh, um, uh, acid rain, acid rain was ruining the world. And then it's just, it always seems like there's this thing and either one of two things happen. And I, I often think two things happen simultaneously. I think the problem sometimes is overstated and we underestimate our ability to actually fix it that, uh, you know, we, we're willing, if we are tasked with the problem, to, to ultimately solve it one way or another. And uh, a lot of the doom and gloom that comes with all of this sometimes worries me a little bit that, um, you know, we're, the world's not ending. <laughs> Long story short, you know what I mean? Like, one way or another, I feel like we're going we're gonna to figure it out and, and straighten things out. But I don't know. It just I, it's, it's just, it's seeped into everywhere now is, is kind of, you know, everything is a, is somehow affected by climate change when you break it down to the the uh, smallest level. Like for example, I was listening to one of your podcasts that was talking about how they were measuring a certain amount of, uh, I guess it would be pollution. You'd want to say, um, with chess players. So, and their their uh, performance was affected by that. So, how much of that has seeped into everyday life. You know, if you're, if you're, if, it, if you can be affected in that control group and I'm sure there's probably other factors as well, but if you can measure that, then it seems like it's measurable across everybody doing their job everywhere, or just living period. Um, little stuff like that seem is, is really interesting to me. Yeah. Climate change, air pollution, all these different things affect us in all these ways we may not notice. And I think it's interesting to get into. It may just be 
on the margins of our bank accounts or our health, but right. it certainly is there. To your other point, I think there's a bit of overstating and a bit of understating with climate change. And I think part of what I try to do is really avoid the doom and gloom, mm -hmm. get to the nuance and the facts and really just give it to you as straight as I can. I don't want to overwhelm people. Sure. I'm not going to sugarcoat it either. Um, I think that, for example, there were the horrible tornadoes this month. Mm -hmm. uh, we're recording in December and that was really scary. And I saw very quickly, a lot of people were talking about, oh my gosh, this is climate change. This is a wake up call. Uh, these tornadoes should not be happening in December. Mm -hmm. Scientists have not proven the link between tornadoes and climate change. We don't know if that is even a correlation. Mm -hmm. It's possible, certainly very weird for a tornado of that magnitude to happen in December, but there's not that scientific evidence. And even if you look back at the historical record, hurricanes, wildfires, you can see they are getting a lot worse now than they ever were. Tornadoes, we don't see that. So mm -hmm. we have this example, but that's just maybe an outlier. We don't know. Uh, so I don't want to say it doesn't cause it. I don't want to say it does. We, it's purely we don't know, and that's fine, and scientists will work on this. So I think in those types of situations, you can see how uh, we maybe are so scared of climate change, uh, especially folks in the environmental world, that they might jump to attribute something to it when that might not be the case. At the same time, we have something like the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, which the ice shelf holding it back from falling into the water. Uh, scientists just showed that it's cracking. It will collapse in five years. And this glacier the size of Florida will fall into the ocean and cause sea level rise beyond anything we could have possibly imagined. That kind of thing, I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. It's in Antarctica. We're not mm -hmm. seeing it firsthand, but it's a really, really big deal. So you can see how... It can really go either way. Sometimes we're overstating. Sometimes we're understating. What what I find really frustrating is with, especially when you get into this topic, I feel like this topic is one of those weird ones that it lines up somewhere with religion. Like either it seems like people believe in it, but you can also go down like the checklist of all the things they do or don't believe. Like as soon as you start talking about it, you're like, okay, do you believe in this? Yep. Okay. You believe in this? Believe in this? Okay. There's no changing your mind. You, you've made a decision one direction or the other. And it seems like in the middle is where I hopefully the rest of the people are um, trying to make sense of it all. Because it seems like there's so much data coming in from every which direction, especially these days, that I find it nearly impossible to be solid on any one subject, let, you know, let alone something this, this massive um, worldwide uh, effect of, you know, what multiple things could be doing to the world. It, it sometimes seems so enormous that it's kind of hard to get a, a handle around unless you're willing to just 100% make a leap of faith in one direction or another and, and go. Yeah, I think I put a lot of trust in the scientific method where you ask a question, you mm -hmm. uh make a hypothesis, you do research, you gather data, you analyze that data, you have peers perform the same experiment, and after a very long time, you come to a certain conclusion. Sure. For me personally, 
I'm not a climate scientist. I'm a 22 year old who just graduated with an <laughs> environmental bachelor's degree. So I know enough to say, I'm going to trust that you climate scientists have got this under control. I'll, I'll read your paper here and there and I'll, uh, check up on several different sources to make sure that what you're saying is valid. Um, I'm not going to expect that I can measure the carbon concentration at the top of a volcano or something. So there's that kind of, um, sorry, the echoing got in my head. <laughs> um, there's that kind of challenge where sure. you need to be able to um, think critically about these issues and, I think people are able to do that. I think in terms of believing or not believing, that gets tricky because this is a very science-based issue. And what I really try to do is separate the science out from the policy because there we can really get into a debate. And that I think is fun and mm -hmm. useful and sure. constructive. But to debate something like, is climate change happening? I would probably ask like, okay, do you believe that humans are emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I, I don't know how you deny that. Do you believe that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that traps solar radiation and warms the planet? I, I mean, you could say no, but why? Like, sure. I think you go down this line and you, it's hard to really say when you see that humans have emitted this much CO2, CO2 is capable of warming the atmosphere by this much. And this is the, warming that we're measuring, it's hard to really deny that, especially when we're now seeing the effects of it in changing hurricanes and wildfires what, and all that. So, so what, what is the driving force between, you know, the increase in hurricanes and the severity of them? Yeah. So there's kind of three factors and hopefully I can remember them all <laughs> off the top of my head. So first would be rainfall. Warmer air can hold more moisture and in regions where there would be hurricanes, these are tropical regions, they take full advantage of that ability to hold more moisture, and that can worsen hurricanes. Two would be sea level rise. So when the climate warms, it's not just glaciers melting into the ocean, but you think about uh, the water would actually expand a little bit. When it gets warmer, the particles separate a little bit. Obviously, evaporation would be when it turns into steam the particles separate sure. a lot and they go fly in the air so you have that effect happening that warms sea levels or that rises sea levels so you have hurricanes now able to inundate further inland and that creates more damage uh, the hurricane can reach a city at much faster speeds than maybe it could before um, and then third would be i believe it would be the changes in wind changes in currents, all that kind of thing. Um, the climate allows the heat. Heat is energy. We remember that from mm -hmm. high school physics. So sure. you have heat, you have more energy that allows these winds to pick up a lot faster and that creates a problem as well. So that's really the link between climate and hurricanes. We actually interviewed one of the original scientists who was instrumental in figuring out that link, mm -hmm. which was really fun. So what's the solution? So it's, so this is, this is kind of one yeah. of the things that, so there's, it doesn't seem like there's any way to get the, the genie back in the bottle. Once the sea level rises, how do we cool off the earth enough to 
put the ice back, you know, I mean, if, if there, if truly in five years, and, and when I say truly, um, you can go back through either the past 60, 70 years. And it seems like every five to 10 years, there's going to be this massive event of some sort. And I think this is what I was saying about believing that I've heard as many different, like doomsday sort of climate things that are going to happen in five and 10 years that sort of never really happened. They might've kind of happened. Um, as I have like crazy nutball religion, the world's going to end type stuff. So I feel like sometimes people just kind of completely dismiss it and go, that's just all bullshit. It's not going to happen as opposed to, well, maybe we overstated that a little bit, but there's definitely something going on or maybe our projections were off one way or another. There's something that happened, but once, so once something like we're headed towards, if something is going to fall off Antarctica, the size of Florida into the ocean and cause the ocean to rise, how do we stop that? I mean, at this point, it kind of seems like we're, we're headed down a path of, uh, we can't fix that. Oh, we're not stopping that. That's, that's happening. (laughs) Um, I think you're right. There has been a bit of alarmism over the last few decades. And I think that's maybe been part of why it's taken a little longer for people to really understand the magnitude of climate change. And that's in part because climate science is new science. Scientists, they've learned a lot. They're still asking a lot of questions. I think if you go to the scientists themselves, they are very willing to admit when they don't know something. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what gives me trust. And when they say they do know something, I'm like, okay, they, they're happy to say they don't know. So if they do know that that's something they're pretty sure. I think, um, but yeah, you have projections. And if you look at the graphs that the scientists will actually put in their papers, it sort of has confidence intervals where you say, maybe it'll be this bad. Maybe it won't be quite as bad, but it's somewhere in this range. And as you go further into the future, that range gets bigger and bigger Sure. in terms of solutions this isn't about stopping climate change. It's about keeping it under control. It's about making it something that we can adapt to and we can live with. And it's not going to fundamentally change our life and we'll be pulled up in Manitoba or something. <laughs> right, right. Um, so what we sort of have like three categories of climate solutions. We have mitigation, which would be actually cutting carbon emissions Uh, moving from fossil fuel energy to renewable energy, which is increasingly economically viable too, which I think makes that more exciting. I think Mm -hmm. for a long time, that was just a pie in the sky prospect, but it's really not anymore. Um, And that doesn't just have, I mean, solar and wind are competitive. Nuclear is an option. There's a lot of ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second would be adaptation. So things like... um, moving to higher ground, putting up seawalls, even just kind of the things in our day-to-day life uh, or for farmers, like using drought-resistant seeds or those types of actions. Third would be geoengineering. And that's where we're not quite as, uh, we don't have quite the same expertise there. That's more about actually manipulating the climate through our actions we can do one thing very easily, which is planting trees and conserving forests. That is technically geoengineering. That's manipulating the climate by sucking carbon back out of the atmosphere. Um, But there's other technological ways that we're exploring to do that too. 
So we kind of have those three categories and I think there's some combination in there that um, it's not going to fix climate change. It's already happening. It's here that we can certainly make it a little more manageable for ourselves. You know, I was just thinking when you were talking there, isn't it kind of weird that we're really bad, like as a, as a, I, I, I say species here as people. So we all are super hyper focused and concerned about having a fire department in our community and having it staffed and making sure it's funded. But in our house where we live, where the fire is going to be and could most affect us, we have this little disc that just beeps when there's a fire and hopefully somebody comes and puts it out. Like we don't build in a fire suppression system in our house. Maybe we have like a clunky fire extinguisher laying around, but that seems like our approach to everything. Like we give us a warning and then hopefully somebody will come and fix it for us. And it it never really seems like we, we tackle things head on as a, as you know, we're going to head off the problem. We just wait till the problem happens and then like, Oh, okay. Now how do we deal with this? Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I think a lot of people really debate the usefulness of individual solutions versus more political technological solutions. And what I always kind of say, I never really want to like rely on a solution that starts with if everybody would just X, Y, Z, because everyone never does does uh, what you want them to do. I think they'd be kind of pissed off if you asked them that and rightfully so. Right. I think I do. I'm shocked by the number of people that will say to me, like, well, what can I do? I'm like, really? You <laughs> want to like, great, go. <laughs> Here's a couple things you might want to do. Um, but I, I don't think that's the whole population. I, I don't even know that that's myself. I'll do the things that are convenient for me, but I right. won't. Uh, not giving up beef or not flying on airplanes or anything so- extreme like that. So I think it comes down to how can we create policy that incentivizes um, better environmental outcomes, which very often can coincide with better economic outcomes too. Mm -hmm. And then how can we develop technologically? A lot of it already exists and just needs to be kind of made to scale or what have you. Um, But there's certainly ways to kind of combine the three in a more meaningful way. So how long, I I listened to your episode today about sharks, how long and how much information did you find out about sharks? Because it it, you just, it just went like in a couple different ways that I wasn't expecting. And uh, I I was thinking while I was, I was listening to that. I don't even know where I'd begin on this research and how, how do you craft that to come back? I mean, so walk me through start to finish, I guess. So you have you had somebody had an idea that you know sharks are affected by climate change. How are they? But then it took a couple turns. Do you find those turns as you're researching and, and starting to to kind of hone down what the episode's going to be ultimately about? Yeah. So credit where credits due. Uh, my one of my researchers, Megan Crimmins, and. Uh, one of our comedy folks, Shane and Damiano, were the ones who wrote that episode. So this is one of the first where I didn't have quite as hands-on of a experience with it, but I can take you through the process because I at least know how the episode was crafted and obviously know what ended sure. up in it. Sure. Um, so our team and myself included, we have environmental backgrounds in college. So 
we don't know details about these specific subjects usually, but unless it's something we're just passionate about on the side, but we do have a really good framework of what the main environmental issues are, how they might affect, uh, like more general effects. So with sharks, for example, we obviously know that climate change is warming our oceans. It's also making them more acidic. We could pretty easily infer that this is a path to research about sharks. And we did, and we found some interesting things. Um, We also knew that uh, seagrass meadows are being decimated um, and reefs are being decimated. And those are at the bottom of the food chain. Mm -hmm. And so you think, okay, sharks are the apex predator. What do sharks eat? Sharks, for example, eat rays. What do rays eat? Rays eat seagrass. What does that mean? We know seagrass isn't going well, so rays probably are suffering, so that affects sharks. Um, So we kind of have those types of frameworks that we can go down. Um, Overfishing is something we generally know about. So we, I mean, I think if you just look at why sharks are endangered, you'll see overfishing pretty quickly. Um, But we could kind of go a little further and understand maybe what dynamics are at play there and... I kind of made the leap even after all the research was done to say the problem is very often presented as like, we're eating too much shark fin soup and we're using <laughs> shark in our lotions and our makeup and we need to just stop. And how I look at it is if people are willing to spend money for shark, why get rid of like, why get rid of that? Why can't we figure out a way to have sharks and have the money that people spend on it go back into conserving them? Sure. I think about cows are never going to go extinct because right. we are very willing to pay for them. Right. So I sort of drew that connection toward the end of the episode about how is that a possibility? Could we kind of put these two things in sync? It really just comes back to that so often where we like our economic motive in this case would be to conserve this species. Right. Um, right. And so why not align that? How many things do you think are, are along that same line where the, the initial, like you said, you you hear about shark fin soup and you think, Oh my God, that's, that's terrible. I can't believe these people are doing that, but that's kind of a, you know, it's, it's almost off to the side. It's, it's, it's an issue, but it really isn't the, it's probably the most emotional part of it, but it's not really the, the root cause of it. And it seems like a lot of times our focus is on the wrong thing altogether. Like we're, we're mad about something that really isn't the, the root problem. And it seems like a lot of these issues are exactly like that. Yeah. In that instance, it actually was a bigger part than I expected. Overfishing was the largest threat to shark populations um sharks have actually been around for like i think 400 million years it was longer than dinosaurs longer than trees so that's a pretty good run though i mean come on (laughs) (laughs) you want to live forever sharks like come on guys yeah uh so yeah, they, they've withstood ice ages that like mm-hmm. climate change will affect them, but it will affect them because it affects their food and it will affect 
they're embryos because the ocean's more acidic. But like, it's not what's really affecting them is the overfishing and then the climate change becomes an issue because the populations are already so low. And so shark fin soup, I think was like the leading cause of why sharks were getting overfished. And I think in part that's because, I mean, sharks only have so many fins and you (laughs) chop a fin off a shark and they're going to die. So, um, so we don't really think, and a bowl of shark fin soup has a whole shark fin in it. So like when you eat a bowl of shark fin soup, you have killed a shark. So it's exactly like chicken wings. <laughs> like I always think that when we're eating chicken yeah. wings, like you're eating a dozen chicken wings. You're like, wow, this took six, chi- six chickens. Where's the, like the rest of the chicken. So shark. I always think about like, who's eating all the breast and thighs for like <laughs> my plate of wings. Like they're going always... somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. So do you, one of the things that I, especially with animals that I kind of, I don't know, um, think is weird is as we're, we're, we're not okay with anything disappearing and I'm not saying sharks should or anything, but over the course of however many millions of years, the planet's been around, I can't, there must be untold numbers of species that have come and gone for various reasons. And, you know, I mean, it could be anything from climate to, I mean, pick something, you know, there's a overabundance of a certain predator that wipes out a certain species and then, you know, their food's gone and then the predator's gone. Then it's just this cycle of life. And sometimes it feels like I get, I get confused and, and trapped in between. Are we part of the cycle of life or are we just wrecking it? Like ultimately it seems like as we have taken over the, the planet and we keep uh, producing and growing and as a species, we're part of it, but it also feels like we're wrecking the rest of it too. And I don't, I I don't know how to feel like where the balance there is for all of that. Yeah, we are part of the food chain. And I mean, part of evolution is getting good enough at succeeding in the food chain that your species survives. We have maybe come up with a cheat code for the food chain. Uh, I don't know. Um, in terms of extinction, I, I mean, I do think it's a difficult issue for a lot of people to care about. I know a lot of people who are just these inherent animal lovers that can care about any species immediately. I don't know that I'm that way. Maybe I've been nudged a little more that way (laughs) by being around these issues more, Mm -hmm. but I think what's amazing we obviously there have been extinctions all through history and obviously there have been changes in climate all through history, but right now we're seeing extinctions on the scale of thousands times more than we ever have. And climate, obviously we've seen changes, but never at this pace. Um, So it's really the magnitude of the issue, not just, it's not an issue that species are going endangered. It's an issue that it's happening this quickly especially for a species like a shark, which is an apex predator that really controls an ecosystem. For instance, if you lose sharks on a reef, then uh, the fish that the sharks would eat will start to explode their populations. They'll start eating all the, I can't remember the exact chain of events, but basically Mm -hmm. uh, the coral dies out and algae takes over the ecosystem and that's not very good. So uh, you have these kinds of situations where you can say, we don't want this species going away because it helps us. 
but there's there's not a there's never a thought that if we just let that happen it's all going to work itself out like in the end it's going to be bad for us i mean at the end of the day i mean if, sure it'll work itself out but, but is it going to be beneficial that's, that's what i'm trying to yeah think. we i mean i think we're i don't know if all environmental people would say this but <laughs> I, I think we're in this for us i mean yeah <laughs> like let's let's be honest and if sure we can have a algae dominated system instead of the great barrier reef but think about how much money the great barrier reef brings in for queensland australia think about mm-hmm. the carbon that the great barrier reef stores as opposed to algae which will block out sunlight and kill any fish that would try to live there but like you can take a lot of these issues and say maybe human i don't think humans are going extinct because of climate change (laughs) that's not a threat at all um and i just did uh next week's podcast i kind of explained that a little bit further but um yeah how do we want to live do we want to preserve these types of things i think that's important to consider. Sure. It it does seem it does seem like there's there's a strange balancing act that's going on between keeping things the way they always were, preventing them from turning into something that we're worried about them uh, eventually turning into, and just being comfortable in the middle. Like those three things always seem at odds, no matter what what the the topic is or the, I mean, anything from, you know, pick something from cars to energy to, you know, I mean, whatever the topic is, those three things are all, it seemed like at odds with each other. Um, What is interesting. I went to uh, every year I've been going for a long time. uh, I'm involved in the motorsports industry and there's a big show out in Indianapolis. It's the kind of like the big uh, national show every year for all the vendors and racers and it shows next year's technology and stuff. And for the first year, there was a, a pretty good size hall that was all electric vehicles and electric conversions. And it was really fascinating, neat stuff. And it was kind of neat to see it's that starting to take hold in basically a, a straight up racing crowd. And the amount of people that were excited about it, and like we all sat around and talked about it at dinner and how cool it was and the, the power you could make from it and the different things. So I do feel like we're moving in a direction. It just seems like it takes a long time to move everybody in a direction. So hopefully we're moving fast enough to, to keep everything going and not wreck the world. But yeah, I was, I'm sure I, you're seeing this yourself. If um, we can't just create environmentally conscious alternatives and expect people will like them because they're environmentally conscious. Right. It has to be better than the original. And I'm hearing, I mean, I'm not an expert on this. You'd know better than me, but I'm hearing that these electric vehicles are starting to become better. um, At least moving in that direction. They're actually performance wise there. There's this fine line between right now that they're having a, a little bit of trouble with actually having enough power to do something prolonged. So you're probably not going to see them in like the Indy 500 for a while. Um, but short burst stuff like drag racing and, and just all around stuff like that. Um, it's an, it's incredible what these things do. And it's oddly strange when you watch them run, it's just the silent thing going incredibly fast and, and it's neat. People are, are really into it and they have, uh, 
a lot of the, a couple of the booths there, they have a lot of these deals where you can take like your old muscle car. Like they had an old seventies Cadillac and they had it converted all to electric and it was, it was cool. And it was probably wicked fast at the end of the day too. So stuff like that, I think is going to push this as people start to accept, you know, the coolness of it and the, it, it is faster. So, um, I, I think we're headed yeah, in a kind of neat direction. And all these things can align. I don't think uh, protecting the climate needs to be this grand sacrifice that it's often made out to be sometimes. Sure. It can be a push to innovate and create better solutions. Because um, again, it's very often about efficiency. It's about how do we save money on the light bulbs in our office or the heating or right. the whatever. It, it can actually be a very positive thing to think in those terms. Sure. So where, what part of the country are you, are you from? Oh, well, I grew up in Connecticut. I went to college in Boston, and now I'm, uh, I've been in California for six months. Okay. And now how, how much – we're in Pennsylvania, so I, I believe we probably live in completely different – Oh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, northern Pennsylvania, kind of up towards Erie right down from oh, Buffalo. I'm a big Steelers fan. So, okay. Yeah. We're about three hours from <laughs> Pittsburgh. We're right on the border. Oh, very nice. So around here, like we're right in the middle of oil and gas country. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's huge around here. Now, what surprised me about California is I didn't realize how much oil and gas industry there is out in actual California. Once you get outside of the, the cities there, but how much of the energy in California, cause I know they've kind of taken a big stride towards this is coming from renewables like solar and, and wind and different things of that nature. Is it, is it huge or are they still relying a lot on a, a fossil fuel of some sort? I don't know the exact breakdown. I know there's some mix. What I do know is gas prices are ridiculous here and mm-hmm. they recently banned uh, gas powered, uh, was it was like landscaping, so like lawnmowers, right. leaf blowers, those sorts of things. And I tend not to get into like which solutions I like and which I don't, because Mm -hmm. I I feel like my job is just to inform and to say, here's the problem. Here are some solution options. Here are the pros and cons. But I do obviously see cons to those sorts of approaches because first off it, like we're not at a point where everyone can have an electric car and that shouldn't necessarily be, the goal right now, because if you've had a gasoline powered car for just a couple of years, it's way bigger of a climate impact to go junk that and buy the new electric one <laughs> right. than to just use your car. So I don't know if that's the right approach. Well, what I, I, I don't know <laughs> on, on the backside of that, how prevalent is, do you guys have an electric infrastructure out there? Because like we were, we were talking about this on the way from Indianapolis because the, we, we talked about the electric car thing, like drove it into the ground. But then when we were driving back to Pennsylvania from Indianapolis, we started looking around for like charging stations. Um, if we actually had one of these, would we actually be able to go from Indianapolis back to Pennsylvania? I'm sure there's probably charging state charging stations somewhere, but we didn't see any just in the regular infrastructure of, you know, stopping and getting fuel and, and grabbing a sandwich here and there. So is it more prevalent out where you guys are? Because it seems like you guys have more of a electric vehicle presence out there than we do out here. Yeah. I mean, you don't always notice them. I think sometimes, like, 
I'll see it and mistake it for like a what are they called? Where you a parking meter? Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> uh, it's not always like EV charging station, big neon sign. <laughs> Just like a gas um, station. So I'm sure. Uh, I mean, if you were looking for them, that's maybe different. But from what I understand, you can get from any part of the country to any other part of the country in an electric vehicle. Um, obviously, you gotta plan and be smart, but sure. um, I, I'm pretty sure that you can do that. I see them a bit more in california i'm i mean i've always lived in areas that i think may be more prone to have them but Mm -hmm. i certainly see them pretty frequently here but i mean wherever you are like their electric vehicles are getting a lot better from what i understand um and again this is probably an area you'd know just as much if not more than i do but i think there's certainly a lot of promise there and i i think maybe we're jumping the shark a little bit in some areas where we're just like making policy, assuming everyone has access to an electric <laughs> right, vehicle, right. but I think we can get there in the near future. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. The other thing that I find just to finish up on this area, but uh, I find unbelievably frustrating is we have basically a century of working on gas and diesel powered emissions to the point where the the new cars, the amount of emissions is, I mean, they, they've they've done a pretty good job in getting better all the time. I, I want to say there's a couple vehicles that the air comes out cleaner than it is when it goes in if you're in a city. Like, it does such an amazing job mm. filtering through the system. Um, so we have technology that is allowing us to to uh, to to exist with without putting out emissions. And it seems like we're we're just kind of scrapping it all. Like, all right. And it, obviously, it's not going to go away overnight or anything like that. But the focus has just come right off of that. And now we want to go to all the renewable. And I'm sure ultimately someday in the future, it's going to be the best. But it just seems really odd to me that we, we've come this far and we have these really good emission systems. And we're just like, eh, <laughs> good enough for now. But we're, we're not going to try and develop that further and, and, you know, make it something better. It just seems strange we've reached this stopping point. And I, I can't square that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm not well-versed enough to know, I guess, how far we could continue to take it. Um, obviously, we know that burning uh, oil or natural gas is going to put carbon into the atmosphere. We know that we can create renewable... Uh, and by the way, renewable energy isn't always clean energy, for mm-hmm. instance... Uh, biofuel is renewable, but that also emits carbon into the atmosphere. Um, you can take it back out by <laughs> replanting sure. the same plant, but that's uh, that can be on the scale of centuries. So, um, but yeah, we we have the capability to generate electricity with clean energy that is not putting carbon into the atmosphere. Um, there are issues we have to look at there too. We have to look at how we mine the stuff that goes into our solar panels that kind of thing but we know how to do this in a climate friendly way and we can address those types of issues so we don't have the capability to just generate like raw energy the way we do with burning gas or coal or something like you can't set a solar panel on fire (laughs) and do that right but that's why I think a lot of experts are really advocating that we look to figure out how we electrify all these different things, cars, mm-hmm. 
someday maybe airplanes, certainly heat, those types of things. Because if we do that, then we can use uh, climate-friendly energy, which we know we have, and we know it's more and more competitive, and maybe that's why we're moving away from developing further and further with gasoline, because we know we have this other alternative that looks to be cheaper and mm-hmm. more environmentally friendly in the near future. Um, so it's an interesting question, um, but I guess that's my first thoughts on it. Sure. So I was going through your website today and I was looking at all the different guests you've had on, on your podcast that you've used. And uh, it, it's a pretty good list of professors and academics and scientists and researchers. So how, how do you go about finding the person for whatever the topic is? Do you typically find a person that you find interesting first and sort of go backwards the other way? Or do you have some, you know, specific topic and then you seek out an expert in that field? And if you do that, how, how do you find those people? More often it's the first where we find a person and then find the topic. Um, really a large number of our guests have just come from our professors who are on tweeting about it and then their professor friends see us on Twitter and like, Hey, I want to do that. And then we have them on. Um, now it's at the point where we have so many people following us that we have a spreadsheet of like a hundred names that every so often I'll go through and be like, okay, who do we like? What topics look interesting? Um, and now a little more I'll say like I want to do this topic so I'll go find a person um, because now we're big enough that I can cold email people and get a better response rate but um, yeah certainly the big majority comes from we see a person we like and then we uh, find the right topic for them. And how willing to be on a podcast or or share their research information are most of those people i mean it seems to me there'd be a little hesitant hesitancy sometime to uh basically go out and make a public statement and and uh i i don't i don't know how much of you know anything they do is really that controversial i guess but um are they typically willing to just share whatever knowledge they have without too much issue or you know part of why i wanted to stick to just uh, college professors. I, that's all we interview. And I think that was in part because I really wanted us to be like your environment 101 for all these different issues. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to have people's first exposure to sharks or jellyfish or seagrass or chocolate or what have you to be some CEO of a company that wants you to buy their product or right, right, uh, right. whatever. So that's why I went in that direction. And I think that knowing the format of our podcast, where really I'm just going to ask them about their research, I'll ask them tough questions, but not like gotcha questions, sure. more just um, asking them to really reflect on what their research and its implications might be. Um the only hesitancy I've ever seen is um, folks who have had experience with other news outlets kind of misquoting them or mm-hmm. giving bad context. And I really try to assure folks that I hate that as much as they do. I'm right. an environmental major, so I will do everything I can to avoid that. Um, but I also 
I think I really like it. I had one expert uh, on landslides who, after the episode, he was so excited because he was saying, finally, my family understands what I do for a living. (laughs) Um, So I honestly feel like we've ended up providing a really great service to the academic community by translating a lot of their uh, professory lingo into lay people terms. I'm sure something that's able to digest, you know, that is kind of funny, especially in this world of like constantly being tricked into clicking on things. Uh, I get super frustrated when you see a topic and uh, it, it could be anything. It doesn't have to just be this topic, but you, you'll so-and-so says blank and you're like, really? That sounds like batshit crazy. And then you click on it and you watch the interview and you're like, well, they kind I mean, they said those words, but that's not what they meant. And uh, I feel like too much of that is, has seeped into everything where instead of just having a nice conversation and, and being able to enjoy it, everybody has to kind of cherry pick those little gotcha things out of them. And it's so annoying. Yeah. As a football fan, that drives me up the wall. Yes. And especially, um, and this goes for everything, but any headline that starts with, so-and-so breaks their silence on, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, this happened a day ago. Like, what silence? <laughs> right. Um, it's- so it's 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 tricky and it's tough for content creator. I, I mean, I'm sure you know this very well as a podcaster, that we're so reliant now on third-party platforms to get our content out there. Mm-hmm. We have to go by their rules um, and... It's it's tough. Uh, very often you have to pay the platform just to right. get people to see what you're doing. And so it's certainly a lot of people have just said, well, if this is what's going to get clicks, this is how we're going to frame things. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I hope that we can, at least in the world of the environment, it's really important to me to approach this stuff with nuance. And that can be hard to fit into X number of characters, but... I really do my best to do that. And I hope people can appreciate that and trust that we're giving them good information and we're not going to try to mislead them one way or another. I, I have no stake in this beyond just wanting to live a happy, healthy life and uh, not, I don't know, keep my bank account secure and all that (laughs) good stuff. So, so if, if people were going to go and listen to your podcast and what, so, before we go any farther, do penguins actually sweat? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, they have feathers, so so I was I so my daughter and I went know. to an, went to an aquarium this past summer. They had penguins, and uh, when they came walking by, I was really surprised that they're they're not like smooth like a raincoat. They're kind of fuzzy, and mm-hmm. then when I saw your podcast, it started to make me wonder: like, do they sweat or not? Like it just was a i don't know anything yeah, about penguins I, I should know this <laughs> I, I feel like i've let you down by not knowing that <laughs> it'll, it'll be a cliffhanger like in a future episode yeah. uh i'll yeah. reveal, the, well, what reveal I the hope answer. is uh and we'll see if it happens or not but i feel like once we hit episode 100 if we haven't done it by then that has to be a penguin episode. <laughs> it seems seems perfect but what i was going to yeah. say was for somebody that that's starting out listening to your podcast you have quite a few episodes what would be your favorite episode that you would point somebody to and go, listen to this one first and it'll hook you. And it, it was one of our best ones. Yeah. I'll give 
maybe a. I'll give two. So okay. first, uh, our chocolate episode, I think, was just really, really eye-opening in a number of ways. And I think it's interesting for a first-time listener because it's close to our hearts. We love chocolate. Um, but there's really important issues with uh, both climate change is affecting chocolate. Chocolate loves to be in the heat. It mm. is in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, which are two West African countries primarily. Um, but chocolate is really affected by the increased drought that is happening. Chocolate needs a lot of water. Um, but also you have this situation where economically there's this uh, oligopoly with the chocolate traders. So only three companies uh, buy chocolate from the warehouses. So mm -hmm. they basically set their own price, which drives the prices down, leads the farmers to not get enough money, which leads them to turn to some extreme measures to uh, grow more chocolate to try to sell more and make a living. And those extreme measures uh, far too often are deforestation and child labor. So we really broke that down. A great episode to write comedy for. <laughs> <laughs> that that was tough. Um, but that was really, really interesting and eye-opening. So I recommend that. And I'd also recommend the Tropical Cyclones episode, which really talked about hurricanes. And I mentioned that one before. Um, I think that's very uh, pertinent right now and just so cool to talk to like the person or I mean, one of a few, but one of the like key people in developing that sure. uh, hurricane research. Sure. That's you're just all over the place. Like with the uh, it's <laughs> impressive. I, I, I was, love it. The I, new I was, thing every week. Yeah. Keep, keep the mind fresh. It's funny that now I can just like. If I'm having a conversation, I'll just steer it into a topic that we've done, and then I sound very smart. Sure. Um. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect plan. Uh, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, hey, man, I had a great time tonight, and uh, I fascinating stuff. Uh, where, so thesweatypenguin.com, and I think you're pretty much anywhere that anybody finds podcasts. I saw you, your podcast popping up. Uh, is there anywhere else in particular you'd like to send people that want to learn more about it? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. Uh, sweaty, the the sweatypenguin dot com. Um, we're on any podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to this. I'm sure you can find Sweaty Penguin. Um, you can also we have a Patreon, um, which has the opportunity for listeners to get bonus content, get early access, get merch. Um, we're working on a signed book raffle once we hit to tw once we hit 25 patrons. Uh, some of our experts have graciously donated books. So a lot of really cool stuff there. That's patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. Um, of course, we're on all other social media. Um, so yeah, we're, we're everywhere. All right, man. Well, Go thanks so much out. for, thanks for, so much for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll have to catch up again in the future sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. All right, bud. Thank you. <laughs>